Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. I feel like the forgotten piece is uh, a little prescient right now because maybe you thought we forgot about you. It's been a couple of weeks since we released an episode. There were some film festivals that happened, some big releases in the world of horror. Uh, my friend, colleague, and partner in crime, Matt Donato, wrote about 600 pieces coming out of South by Southwest and a few other things. So we didn't. I want to promise you, it's the films that are forgotten, not you. We never stopped caring. We just got a little bit busy, but we're happy to be back here now. And like, it's a constant thing, too. We, we do love you and we love your support. And just bear with us as we are still two working gnats with day jobs who are trying to do this side project amongst our other freelance uh, thingies, let's say, between writing and podcasting and videos. And I'm tired. Hmm. But it's really important for us that we start this episode with an appeal to your empathy um, because because we have a really, really, really good guest this week. And we don't want any of our scheduling issues to in any way reflect on their quality and the insights that they're going to offer. So feel bad for us. Feel excited for this week's guest, Donato, who you're about to introduce. I am. And this is actually from uh, Blaine. I don't know if you even know this, but before I get to your very mini introduction, uh, this is actually by way of Phil from Fangoria. Uh, I asked Phil to give me a list of people who we should definitely snack on this podcast. And like, yeah, you were on the top of the list. So you can thank Phil for, or, you know, let's get to the episode and maybe you can thank Phil if you would like to, <laughs> or you could send him a nasty image. I don't know. We'll see what at the end, but uh, yeah. So let's get to the actual introduction of this. And we have podcaster from Ladies and Ligaments, Blaine Waterloo. Blaine, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And I am already just rushing into Phil's uh, texts to just bombard him with why the hell would you do this to me? Mm -hmm. And annoy yeah, him. Correct. It's important to annoy yeah. Phil at all times. Yes, exactly. A lot of exclamation points and gifts. He loves those. He loves them. <laughs> well, let's I want to start there, actually, talking about uh, podcasting, because um, Blaine, we were talking a little bit before Donato jumped on, um, kind of like shared backgrounds in history. And we're going to do a deep dive into your love of horror in just a second. But I'm always curious when we invite people on the show that do podcasts, that that is a big chunk of what they do. And they're in the trenches creating content, arranging schedules and guests. How does it feel? Not, you know, not even just our podcast, but how does it feel when you have the opportunity to be the guest? Is that a weird transition? Is that something that you're like, oh, this isn't how it's supposed, I'm supposed to ask questions. I'm not supposed to answer them. Yeah, there's a lot more pressure on this side of it. Like I have to come up with the answers on the fly or I have to remember parts of things. Um, whereas, you know, when I'm hosting, it's all right there on the screen in front of me. I get to just ask things that I've already prepared and the other person has to sound intelligent, uh, you know, without a thought or with the most grace that I certainly don't have. Um, so this is a little nerve wracking and um, very exciting and I don't know. I feel oddly zen with you guys. You guys are very, like a tonic. It's beautiful. It, it, we have a, a, a patter, I would say. We have sort of a Siskel and Ebert kind of thing going on that works for us. Uh, highbrow, lowbrow. It, you know, it usually puts our guests a bit at ease pretty quickly, I think. I mean, fuck That's you. That's what it is. Yeah, fair. See, I mean, fuck is. you. <laughs> fuck you, but, buddy. Uh, hey, hey, fuck me, fuck you. Hey. All right, no, okay. Uh, we we could we're going to leave that in obviously, but yeah. uh, Blaine, I want to get <laughs> move the conversation back to you. One of the first questions we like to ask any of our guests is the first time that they remember being conscious of of horror as a genre and seeing a scary movie, whether that was something they sat down and watched in its entirety, 
um, something that was playing in the background, something that their their parents or a family member was watching. Um, so I'd love to kind of hear what your earliest memories of horror are and what sort of put the seeds of the genre in, in the first place. So I have only ever told this story one other time. When I couldn't have been more than four or five, um, I was at my aunt's apartment and around that time she would have been like maybe 19, 20. So her morning routine was watching VH1 and, you know, having breakfast and whatever. Um, And of course, on VH1 were the days of music videos in the 90s. Um, And so on the television on VH1 very early in the morning was the thriller music video. And I was absolutely horrified from start to finish, uh, you know, with the chase and then the movie theater. And then there's the werewolf transition and then the zombies and then they're dancing. What do you do with that? And then Vincent Price has his spooky lines and it is so intoxicating with the music in the background and the choreography and the very minimal but effective acting and the effects like the whole thing just culminates into this awful horrific nightmare um and so as like a four or five year old peeking around the couch just catching little tiny blinks worth of you know horror content and not knowing really why I kept peeking back because it truly was just, why would somebody do that to themselves? But it there was part of it that just felt so exciting um, and kind of like, you know, <laughs> there was one time um, when I was young as well, my mother lost me in a Halloween store and she found me when she, um, you know, heard my giggles and at She found me at like electrocution game, you know, it's like the wrong answer gets electrocuted or whatever. And I would get the wrong answer on purpose. Um, And it's just one of those things where you're you're not really supposed to like it. And that's why you love it. Um, And that kind of just brought me back again and again from um, it uh, with Tim Curry to um, Bats in the 90s with Lou Diamond Phillips and just on and on with like these small bangers that, you know, you weren't allowed to talk about at school because the other kids might not understand and their parents definitely wouldn't understand. And so you have these little nuggets. And then when you get to high school or college, especially, and you find your people um, and they have seen these little taboo, beautiful gems that you have, and you like start to find your community and everything, gosh, it's just it's all a whirlwind. And then you wonder, oh, wow, um, was being a horror fan really ever a choice? <laughs> I was going to say, it, it's funny to uh, to hear that because my mom would never lose me at a Halloween store because I was terrified. <laughs> I've probably said that on the podcast before, but like legitimately t- speaking to your experience of being lost in the Halloween store and finding like a game that is so dark and twisted and nasty and enjoying it as a kid. Um, I wouldn't even go down like the mask aisle. I wouldn't go anywhere near the animatronic like Frankenstein's. Like if if someone was a sign swinger, let's say, or the sign tosser outside for Party City or whatever, and it was like a Frankenstein, I'd even be like, nah, go past that. Drive past that. We're not going. So like, it's hilarious to hear the complete other side of that. But we still got to the same place. Absolutely. And I'm glad we did. I also love that you use uh, bats as the as, as an example in that story because I feel like that is 
that inspires such a very specific point in time memory for me. It's such a like blockbuster rental title, like one that you were like, oh, you were like heard about it and you were like, Bats is going to be out on VHS in like a couple of weeks. Like definitely going to check it out. I hope it's like arachnophobia. Um, I, and I feel like that's that's a weird sort of shorthand. I understand your upbringing as a horror fan so much just by knowing like the context of, you know, by naming bats, I know you, okay, you grew up as a video store kid and like, you, you know, you were doing all these things. It's like, oh, bats is such an interesting and specific example. So, okay. If I say bats, yes, you understand. What about the dentist too? Yeah. Can you picture that? I mean, now though, I guess that was more going back to the age you're talking about it. No, but now I can as like a later horror fan. So actually like I'll say no. It was my favorite uh, title to see. Can I remember exactly where it was in the video store? Um, and I only ever rented it once, I, but it, at I would always remember it as the blockbuster movie. Like that is my go-to blockbuster horror movie in my memory. Mm. It's wild. I've read some um, some of the other interviews that you've done, um, and you said something in an interview you did, which I really really loved, and I want to talk about that in the context of growing up a horror fan. Um, pardon me if I'm paraphrasing or if I'm getting it wrong. You said that you love horror because horror is the only genre that lets you be both the final girl and the monster. And to me, it was the specifics of saying that you get to be, as opposed to like you're rooting for, you get to watch or like that notion that you are represented on screen in both of, of those capacities. Can you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, not to, to sound like a joke, but what you meant by that, but like how that relates uh, so specifically to you? You know, I um, have been unpacking this <laughs> a lot in therapy, and there's a lot of whoremongering that happens to young girls, um, not just in high school among each other, but by adults, um, whether it be teachers or parents or, you know, just society at large. And so, you know, the movie Jessica's Body came out when I was 19. I mean, or sorry, 18 perfect age to see that. It was awesome. I was dating an asshole at the time who totally missed the point of the movie. And, you know, we had a really awful experience afterward. It kind of wrapped it all up in a really pretty bow. And so I knew very deeply from that movie specifically, that's kind of my touchstone of, yeah, I was an awful, heinous bitch as a teenager, but I was also very much a monster to people um, who made me that way. Um, and it, I get that to a certain extent, like with Jennifer's Body, like with Black Sunday with Barbara Steele. Oh my God. Um, and just the hypocrisy of it all. Um, so I really appreciate any genre or expression that allows a person, but specifically women and queer people and Black people and anybody who's not a cishet man to be both the villain and the hero or the survivor and the perpetrator to be a hot fucking mess of it all. Yeah, I think it's important. And that's why, you know, I think I gravitate to horror in a way too, because uh, I've, you know, fucked up plenty of times in my life. And, you know, it's the thing of we are, we're all going to do it. We're all going to make mistakes and using horror as a way to I, I, even the movie that we're talking about today uh, I think does it pretty well where, it, you know, it recontextualizes, you know, monsters and innocence in a way that like, 
you know, maybe the monsters we think on paper aren't really the monsters. And, you know, the people we would usually see as someone innocent or a bystander is not really that person. Yeah, like it's horror is the only thing that, like you said, it lets characters be messy and it lets them really experience consequences that like, you know, you watch other Hollywoodized anything, you know, rom-coms, comedies, anything like that. Like there are character stereotypes that we all have to stay within and we all have to play within the boundaries. But now horror lets you know, the final girl might get to the final point and still like learn plenty of lessons, but it's a bloody, probably messy road to get there. I'm wondering, um, as you're talking about the pieces of of these films and how you kind of connect to them, you know, I think that there, it, it, it strikes me that that you're somebody who has probably been thinking about this stuff at, at, a, at a much deeper level than a lot of us for a, a much longer time, right? I think a lot of people come to horror and it's just maybe like the the visceral or the the practical effects or sort of like the spectacle of horror is the first thing that leads them in. And then later, you know, they find themselves drawn towards the the themes and the underlying political messages. Talk to us a little bit about how you um, found your voice as a writer and as a content creator. Is that something that you were like, always like, I have stuff to say about these movies? Is it something that came a little bit later? When did you find yourself starting to, to think like a, uh, like a journalist, like a film critic, like somebody that had something to say? I love that question very much. Thank you for asking it. Um, Fort, can you ask it again, just so I have it on top of mind? Yes, we'll do the short version. The short version is you have been, it's clear that you've thought a lot about your relationship to horror from the very beginning. When did you realize that you had some things that you wanted to convey as as a writer about your relationship to the genre? Damn it, that's a great question. In college, I was the arts and entertainment editor of our newspaper, and I focused mostly on music. And there's a point there where it really felt like a missed opportunity, because while I was training to be the arts and entertainment editor, I was kind of, uh, I guess, a uh, I was a mentee to the person before me. And we went to see Cabin in the Woods in the theater. Um, And it was such a giddy, beautiful experience of just two horror fans loving the spectacle, the tropes, the just the horror of it all. Um, And I really feel like we could have taken that love and started what I have now realized I so needed and so enjoy at this point in my life so much earlier. Um, But as it were, I think it was probably around 2017, 2016, 2017, when I started to podcast with friends. And it was small stuff that I'm not going to mention here because I don't want anybody to listen to it. But we were, you know, telling horror stories that we had, you know, found on Creepypasta or heard down the line and found random articles to support. Um, And then we moved on to really just watching what we considered B-horror movies, which was comprised of a list that I had mostly created. And we would randomly choose um, a horror movie every other week or something to talk about. And I realized as we were unpacking these movies that I really wanted to dig into not just the, I can't believe they did this, or here was the budget, or here's the plot and you know how it was executed. I really wanted to 
get my hands dirty with the metaphors, the themes that we saw, why, you know, what was going on behind the scenes and what the significance of even, you know, this movie, while it may not have made a buttload of money, it still holds so much import to the industry and to the genre as a whole. And so when those podcasts broke up, I really had this hole in my heart that I wanted to, you know, fill with my own work that I could tote around and be proud of and say, hey, from start to finish, like, I'm responsible for this. And it's, you know, my pride and joy. And that's kind of where Ladies and Ligaments came to. Um, It was around the time that Hear a Scream, the anthology, um, was first published, volume one. And that's where I first relayed my relationship with horror and the trauma that's mixed in and how that's culminated to uh, just me. And it's kind of rolled around basically between Hero Scream and Ladies and Ligaments. I heard from Phil Nobile um, at Fangoria and he and I went to see X uh, at an early showing together and you know, it was beautiful. He was wonderful and so generous with his time and uh, just kind, just a kind person. Um, And he saw that I really enjoyed editing and had some experience behind it. And so now I help to edit um, the Fangoria publication. And it's, it's kind of weird to think about how just talking about movies with a bunch of drunk girlfriends led to, you know, having my name and a legacy and and kind of being part of that i feel like that's you know that's again that's the glory of horror that's the glory of like you're not going to do that with another genre usually you know we didn't do that for even like comedies or stuff like hanging out with my friends and just talking about anchorman and dodgeball and stuff like that wasn't gonna lead anywhere um yeah. it, it, it you know watching american pie with my idiot you know male friends at the time that that wasn't going to lead to anything bigger but um yeah like sitting around with devoted fans in the horror community and sitting around with people that care so much about a genre and you know we'll we'll edit some of that phil praise out because we can't let him know we like him that much (laughs) but um it is it is a thing where like finding your acceptance happens in this genre so much more than any other um and it's it is a oddly beautiful thing you know like going to film festivals and stuff like that like changed a lot of areas of my life like it changed so many things just from hey do you want to go to this festival with just a bunch of horror fans and filmmakers and find the people that you can actually connect with on a way that you haven't connected with people before so it's like yeah no i'll you know we're just praising the horror genre at this point but like yeah y'all know it already just saying it again yeah we're preaching the choir a little bit here which is okay um but I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad you brought up the the film festival piece because the, the uh, original instant people have heard the story in the podcast, of course, before. But the original um, idea behind Certified Forgotten was the fact that Donato and I, when we both lived in New York, before we even knew each other, we had these shared recollections of going to um, Brooklyn Horror Film or Brooklyn Horror Film Festival, New York City Horror Film Festival, and we were seeing all these incredible movies like Found, like you know, these under the wire, like indie indie kind of things the things that wouldn't even get distribution um on vod you'd have to like go find them um you know in somebody's trunk at a dvd sales or whatever kind of an expo you went to and we really connected and bonded and what sort of sustained this is is that festival scene that sense of community and how many of these movies you know feels ephemeral that they play at a festival and that's their moment and then they're just hard to find 
um, or to build a cannon around or to sort of lionize afterwards. So I'm, I, I know, um, I'm, I know that, you know, your work has taken you to a lot of different places, but Blaine, I'm kind of curious, uh, talk a little bit about your relationship to the, if there is one, the horror film festival scene too, and how you thinking about communities, how you interact with that, how you, if you've traveled, if you've done exhumed, I think in Philly and some of the other ones, like if you find that to be a space where you also find that sense of community that you were looking for. I was just going to say to Donato, you know, isn't it so affirming to be in those spaces where you're not really going to agree on everything? You understand that you're not all coming from the same context, but fuck, to be in a space where people get it, they get your references, they understand the way that this kind of genre ebbs and flows and what certain names could mean and what certain titles can bring to a moment that the genre is experiencing, whether it be through a subgenre or a theory or an idea or a concept, whatever. And you can talk in person with these people that would otherwise just be on what your Twitter timeline and create these very needed as human beings connections and validation in our own wants and needs as people it to me it's it's nice to see the movies it's really cool to say hey i saw that first or to be the first on the timeline to be like hey it's great to see this again um but to really get to one of those places to me it truly was just about seeing the people that you care about succeed um, and seeing how close it can be um, or seeing how quickly your friends can succeed. It's it's just an overall humanizing, humbling communi- community experience. It's, yeah, all of it is beautiful and zen and very Age of Aquarius. Yeah, and it's the in-person part of it too. I think that's why I put the stress on film festivals, especially because as you mentioned, like, you know, of course it always exists on Twitter, it exists on forums, it exists on the internet. Um, but I never really found it like going in person and being with those people and actually like getting to connect with them on a personal level versus, you know, you're on Twitter and somebody jumps into your thread and interrupts something and you're just like, oh, this is going away. I don't want it to go and things of that nature. Like I need that in person so much. And I think over the last few years, like the way the pandemic has kind of, or, you know, lockdown, let's say specifically when I couldn't go to festivals and I couldn't do all these things, you know, it was it, it, as much as all of that stuff online was so nice. It was also very weird to see how some people who like, you know, you think you make online friends and you think you have these connections online, uh, you know, just disappeared when we stopped, you know, kind of interacting as much and stopped interacting on Twitter because everyone's depressed and things like that. So it was really weird going back to like South by especially this year and being like, is everyone still going to like me who I think likes me? Like it was just one of those really odd things. And again, I was, I was not proven wrong and all these, you know, you can get in your head as much as you want. And I think that happens so often on Twitter, but uh, I really stress to anybody out there, just going to a festival, going to things in person. And as much as we can, can make, make these amazing connections online. I mean, like that's why you're on this podcast. Anyway, we haven't met in person yet. Like that'll happen sometime. I'm hopefully in the future, but you know, I don't know if you get the chance to just have that in-person thing. I can't stress that enough. And the film festival is a great way to do that. And I also think it's important to stress I think I kind of got in my own head 
the last film festival I was at, um, which was Fantastic Fest this past year, um, I really got into my own head because it was the first time I was going like as part of Fangoria. And I was like, okay, is this a networking event? Is this a, you know, what am I doing? What, like, what, what face am I putting on here? Mm -hmm. Um, And I would just really recommend, you know, regardless of what capacity you're there for, just enjoy it. Just relax. You're not there to impress anyone. You just, just soak it up. Like, like you would any other event where you would just be yourself and goofy. They're all just a bunch of goofs, just like you just breathe and enjoy. You know, we've people won't be able to to see this, but Blaine is is repping Fangoria uh, while recording the podcast as well. Uh, the wonderful Fangoria shirt from a few years ago. I I want to ask uh, how that transition has been because Fangoria is the the Mount Sinai, like the the you know the house on a hill for horror fans. That's the place every horror fan wants to write for. That is the publication that every horror fan wants to subscribe to. And I'm I'm curious. Um, if, if being, I don't want to say seeing how the sausage gets made, right. But like being responsible for helping produce this type of stuff that so many people aspire to have, has that changed your relationship at all with horror? Does, you know, being able to do this on a regular basis, I've had a lot of conversations over the years with friends about like, what is it? Do you do the thing that you love or do you do something else so that you can pursue what you love is sort of like, you know, more of a free time passion. And I'm curious if being in the, in the weeds with actually, you know, making that wonderful horror content happen, is it like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. Or you're like, Oh, it's changed my relationship with like the film industry and horror a little bit. I want to know what it's kind of like from the inside when you're, when you're at the top of the hill. Thank you for calling this the top of the hill. I appreciate that. (laughs) It's, really interesting because there's a conversation I have had with my partner surrounding what success looks like for each of us. And especially on social media, I mean, we've all kind of interacted on Twitter, which I would think is, you know, a lot of people's main social media. Um, It is a lot of competition. It's a lot of comparison. Um, A lot of people announcing wonderful things and not really representing the not so wonderful things that are happening in their lives. And it's very, very easy to see all of that and just say, well, fuck, how am I supposed to work my full time job, also come home, write six articles, get eight hours of sleep, take all my vitamins and not lose my goddamn mind? You're not. (laughs) You're just not. So there has to be some balance there. Okay, what am I? This is my life. This is my reality. What am I willing to have right now? until I can have more or until I can carve out more time and make a more concerted effort for more of that. And for me right now, I am so content with my little slice of contributing editing at Fangoria and my podcast and my little newsletter and watching all of the horror with no obligation to report on it, uh, only writing about the stuff that I like and being aware of what privilege I have in being able to do all of that and being able to rein it in or, you know, go all in on certain things where a lot of other people just fucking can't. That balance, it's, it's different. And Mm -hmm. It's just, 
recognizing that I have what other people are working for and other people have what I'm working for and just recognizing the grand scheme of things like, yes, people are always going to achieve more than you. There's always going to be more to want. Um, but what will, what will actually make you happy? And a lot of people just won't be happy ever. And yeah, I, I kind of had to reckon with that. And someone's always going to want a piece of whatever I am proud of um, without whatever it cost for me. And that's just how it is. Um, so for now, I'm I'm super content and thrilled um, and excited for whatever comes next. But I'm not I'm not pursuing more at this point. I think that's the special thing about, you know, I, the way that I have viewed my success has changed so drastically over the years, because if we want to talk when I started very quickly and like at like 23 or 24 years old, like when I first started writing, it's like, you know, I'm a freelancer. So I'm making $10, $20 an article as someone who didn't know better for a site that would let me do it. And it's like, you just have to do what you got to do. But in my mind, I'm like, cool, I'm going to be a full-time film critic as my day job by 30 or I'm quitting. And like, that was hard fast for a while. Uh, and then all of a sudden you work in the industry more, you start doing more things and I, success changed for me because I realized more and more, I don't think I want to be a full-time film critic, number one, because that doesn't really exist anymore. You have to be like a full-time XYZ, like knowing that the industry has changed so drastically is one thing. Uh, but number two, it was, it was the idea that like, I love writing. I love everything I do after my day job. It is what actually keeps me going. It is my passion. Um, but I also like benefits and I like salaries that pay me what I'm worth. And I learned very quickly more and more that there are so few sites that actually pay what writers are worth and actually like give you a livable wage. And I think that kind of like sucks in a way because a lot of people still see a freelancer as someone who isn't good enough to be full time or isn't good enough to do it 24 mm seven. -hmm. But the reality is like a lot of freelancers I know are damn more qualified and talented than the actual people who have the uh, staff positions. The only thing is, you mentioned privilege before like that's a huge thing where like some people can take that staff job that maybe doesn't pay as well because maybe they're living at home or maybe they're living with a partner or something of that nature like i you know i'm still single at 34 i i've never had somebody that's really like been there to help support you know support each other with and like share things like that so it's like you have to realize what success looks like to you and my success like over the years has changed where I don't know. I think success at this point is working two careers that I have excelled at and doing them in a way that like I am stable. I am living a life I am very comfortable with, but also, you know, I, I don't have to be other people's version of success. It's what you just said. It's it's being what is successful to you is so important. And again, the comparison game has almost killed me three or four times in my professional career. The idea that I will just sit on Twitter and what you said, look at everyone else doing these amazing things. And I would just sit there going, well, why not me and stuff like that. And luckily, I never spiraled hard enough where I let that affect like relationships, but other people have and being someone in this industry who is now fairly successful, uh, like just recently, things have happened between people where it's like, oh, Matt's successful. Why is he successful? Why aren't I? And like, relationships isn't have ended because of that. And it's like, I don't know, you, if you don't think people talk in this industry, because you're bitching somebody out behind their back, like, I just be happy for people and just work harder. If you want what other people have, just work harder to get there. Don't sit there and like cry about why somebody else got it and you didn't. I, 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 there's obviously nuance to that. There are other things of 
that can go into that. But I don't know. Just seeing a lot recently of people not uh, understanding that aspect of it. Just work your ass off and get there. Donato, if, if it makes you feel better, I don't think you're that successful. So thank you. I, I do appreciate that. You, I, it is nice to be humbled. Turn. I do need to be humbled Correct. every now and then. Just keep me Correct. down there. I'm, um, yeah, I'm so grateful for your, I guess that was just really validating to kind of hear you echo those concerns and, and see those relationships take a really awkward and kind of a heartful shift. Um, and you kind of have to reckon with that. And just, I understand that, gosh, people can't really help themselves sometimes. And that's just, part of being human um yeah it's just on to the next i i want to um say i think we're gonna wrap this part of the the podcast because i want to talk about sovam as much as possible but i want to end on on what i think is a pretty fantastic grace note um blaine because we spend you know we talk about the industry a lot when we have guests on a lot of our guests are, are are film critics and writers and content creators and we have a version of a lot of times we have a version of the conversation we just had but i think what a lot of the people, myself included, are aspiring to is sort of a self-awareness and a sense of, of of peace with where their career's at that you just described when you talked about, you know, where you're at with Fangoria, where you're at in your professional career, what what makes you happy and what keeps you motivated. I've I heard, I heard, and I'm I'm sure it's incredibly hard earned and I'm sure it, it needs reaffirmation day in and day out, but I heard a, a level of confidence and peace and comfort um, with your writing career and your content career that I I I don't always hear from a lot of people. So I just want to take a second and, and call that out because I think that that what I heard from you is something we should all aspire to um, in terms of being at peace um, with our role in this industry. And I think, I think that's really nice. Well, thank you very much. And not to take away from that because that is something I'm going to uh, frame after this somehow mentally. Um, but I truly do just want to offer my therapist's contact information in the show notes, if possible. I appreciate you. We can um, I, I I also I have a fantastic therapist. We will just our show notes will just be Matt's therapist and our guest therapist. Um, if they're taking referrals, I need to ask Allie if she is. I don't know if she is. Well, we're going to take a, a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the movie that Blaine has picked for us today. It is called So Vam. It is on Shudder. You can hit pause right now and go watch it. It's only 73 minutes. It's a super easy watch. Come back and you can listen to what we have to say about the film. We'll see you in 73. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten, and thank you again to our Blaine, our special guest, who is, you haven't heard it yet, uh, we're going to have a really good conversation about Sovan in just a couple of seconds. Uh, we always use this opportunity to thank the people that have supported us on Patreon. You know, we would not be able to do what we do, especially with regards to the website, if we did not have the support of people who shared sort of our passion for writing about horror that nobody else wants to write about. Uh, and as part of that, we always open the door to have our community of horror fans share their thoughts with us, make us read something, ask us questions, you name it, whatever. So Donato, for this week's bumper, who do we have and what are they saying? Uh, we have patron member James Shapiro, who is a just wealth of wisdom asking us, why do dogs have cold noses? That's it. That's his bumper. There's, there's nothing else to it. He's asking us why dogs have cold noses. 
Is it because they have warm hearts? Oh, that's actually adorable. Their hearts are so warm that it's like humidity on the outside. It could be true. I feel like it could be true. Uh, dogs have cold noses because it's a. I feel like it's a little like a dog's when Story's nose is wet or dry. That tells me so much about like how happy and peaceful she is. And I feel like that would be a very unpleasant experience if the nose was also super warm, like a really warm wet nose, or oh, a really yeah. warm dry nose. So I think it's it's more of the like dogs are perfectly engineered for our enjoyment. Do you want the uh, the real answer? I do want the real answer. Because, I mean, I, I let you talk, but I Googled it. I just wanted to make sure I had that up. Um, why do dogs keep their noses cold and wet? Dogs wait, have cold. Wait, real quick. Where? What is the source of the... Is it Quora? Because Quora is not a real source for answers. Rover.com. All right, fine. They probably... Whatever. Fine. Go ahead. We're going to trust the good people at rover.com.geocities.blogspot. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, why, do, why do dogs keep their noses cold and wet? Dogs have cold, wet noses because it improves their ability to navigate their surroundings. Through scent, they are able to analyze particles in the air and gather important information. So, wet nose uh, gathers particles easier, and they're able to then navigate based on that. Hey, there you go. Hashtag dog facts. This is the real reason you subscribe to Patreon, right? Yeah. Is to be able to hear these kind of insights that we offer. Uh, James, thank you so much for your ongoing support. I don't, I don't really know what to do with, uh, no. <laughs> with, with that question. I hope you found it as informative as we did. Yeah. Uh, but... Hell, I think uh, I think we're just gonna get back to the episode. How's that sound? Great. All right, welcome back. So this week on the episode, Blaine has brought for us Sovam. Sovam uh, is available on Shutter. It's a 2022 release, which is I'm not used to saying 2020 and still a complicated sense for me. Um, but it is the debut feature of 18 year old, then 18 year old Australian filmmaker Alice Mayo McKay. She's a transgender filmmaker. The film from the opening credits describes this as a uh, transgender and queer vampire story. So it is definitely, definitely leaning in. There's not a lot of subtext here. The subtext here is just text, and they're very excited to make a film that talks about, uses vampirism as an allegory, talks about being part of the LGBTQ community. Uh, and it is, in a lot of ways, a kind of DIY a vampire film. It's a first-time film from a young filmmaker in Australia, um, calling on a community of peers and talents in order to make this happen. But it's a really, really remarkable first feature, and it does a really incredible job, I think, of finding commonalities and common ground between different communities, between the history of the vampire film, and kind of re every vampire movie tries to recontextualize it for a modern day. But it finds a lot of surprising through lines in how it surfaces that over the course of the movie. I don't want to say too much more about it because it is it is a film that is more experiential. I think it, it, if you were to describe the plot, it's pretty simple, um, basic kind of coming of age story. But it's how they tell that story that I think is kind of interesting. So we'll leave it there. And we're going to start with a, a question for Blaine, which is, you know, the rules of the podcast. Donato said, hey, you can bring anything to us that has 10 or fewer reviews. This qualifies. It's got two reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But I'm curious. I, I read another thing I read is that you are a found footage fan. So I was like, oh, she's definitely going to bring us a found footage movie, but she didn't. You brought us this one instead. So what made this the one you wanted to talk about on the show? I was really surprised this was less than 10 reviews um, because to me, this got a lot of hype from the Salem Horror Fest. Um, Kay was really excited about it and amped it up. And, you know, we were all very excited for Alice Mayo McKay and this 
really cool experience of this young trans filmmaker bringing horror uh, to a film festival for what seems like the first time in a lot of people's lives. And so it wasn't just this cool film festival film. It is more of a mold breaker and just so cool to see the taboos broken, the new tropes introduced, the full length drag scenes. Um, just, mm -hmm. I love that they didn't shy away from this. They really wanted to, I appreciate that the subtext is text because there's so much in history um, throughout horror that it very much is subtext. You very much didn't know um, that, you know, so many characters were queer until after the fact, or, you know, you just had an inkling in your own queerdom. Um, but for young people watching Sovam, they are getting everything served to them. They are being told that this world exists for them. That, no, maybe vampires don't exist, but hey, drag queens are even better than vampires, and anybody can be a drag queen, and you know, you can work really hard, and you can face some really shitty stuff. And in this movie, the trans person wins, the queer person wins. And yeah, there's just so much heart and so much to love about this and so much promise shown in the talent throughout um that i yeah i'm i'm going to champion this film every single time and i know that uh when we say it had two reviews on rotten tomatoes what we mean is that it had a review and then it also had a mentonata review uh because the running <laughs> joke it. on the podcast is that every review uh every film we talk about is reviewed by a mentonato so I'm curious, was this one that you caught uh, at Salem? Did you catch a screener of this? How did this come across your radar too? No, this was a, uh, I, I knew it played Salem, um, but mm -hmm. I, I'm just a huge advocate for reviewing everything that I can that Shutter releases. Uh, it, it's one of those instances where Blaine, you mentioned you were so surprised that this had under 10 reviews. And it actually happens more than you think for Shutter releases because we forget that in the context of the horror community, everyone knows Shutter. Everyone's talking about Shutter movies and things of that nature. But then when you get outside of it and you get outside the mainstream, or like the mainstream horror community, reviewers aren't really paying attention. You know, like critics on Rotten Tomatoes and stuff of that nature. Uh, and a lot of the horror critics who are reviewing it, unfortunately, aren't on Rotten Tomatoes. So there is this weird disparity between a lot of these movies that we look at and I go, holy crap, how does this have like three or four reviews? Because yeah, my timeline was going crazy when it came out. But that's just because we know people who are going to watch that stuff. Um, and yeah, it, I think, you know, for me, just to get into like my review of it very quickly, because I have it open right here because I read it back and I'm like, you know, what, what did I say about it? And specifically, and like I stand by it 100%. I understand that I wrote a quote unquote negative review of it. But if you read the actual context of my review, it is still using words like bold, brave, necessary, like it, the reasoning here and the storytelling and everything that's happening is stuff I want to see on screen. It's just the I think one of the more like frustrating parts of being a film critic, because it's almost like I'm writing an apologetic negative review because I'm calling out like, yeah, like the edits are rough. Uh, the supporting performances aren't always great. Uh, the line delivery is not always in the right cadence and things of that nature. But for everything that you said before, though, like this movie is going to be so important for the right audiences. The fact that it exists is amazing. And it does. It shows tremendous promise because this is still someone at the time who was 18. 
You know, this is someone making what is essentially like a thesis film or a student film, but doing it and getting on Shutter and getting on a platform that can bring that voice and bring that like, you know, representation to a place that a lot of people need it. So it, yeah, like my review is there. I, if you look at the tomato, like people often do and just go, oh, it's a green tomato. So it's a bad movie. I Please God read the reviews because it's so hard to, it's so hard to convey everything about Sovam in a single tomato because it, it's, it's a lot of things. But uh, it's worthwhile still for that, and especially for the right communities. I completely agree with that. And I appreciate that, yeah, you you need to read the reviews. You need to read the book. You need to watch the movie. You have to consume these things that you're seeing reviews for as opposed to taking them as gospel. And um I think it's important also to shout out at this point that the three of us uh, talking about this film right now are cis and we can't speak to the trans experience that is conveyed in this movie in any real capacity of empathy or uh, true understanding. So I think from what we can discuss, there's still just so much meat and so much that I hope, you know, future filmmakers take from and take heart in. Um, yeah, I think, you know, just like you just got done saying, Donato, this is so important. And I'm really pumped for everything that McKay has coming after. I'm really excited to watch T-Blockers, which just came out. Yeah, it's, um, there's a lot happening. Well, and Monogle, like, I'm going to ask you a question so you can talk and you can have a little moment here. But, you know, the way that you said that the movie takes these vampire mythos and, and turns them in a way that is you know, we haven't really seen in that way before. Like, you know, what most impressed you? Like what, what, what grabbed your eye and, you know, what was, what led to that comment? Yeah, I think my favorite moment of the film, um, just sort of generally super impressed by Grace Highland, like loved pretty much everything she was doing on screen. She's given sort of the unenviable task of being the explainer, right? Like the person that has to talk to the talk to the hero, but really talk to the audience and be like, this is how our version, our mythos differs slightly from every other mythos. It's kind of a thankless job and she does a really good job with it. Um, which is not at all that every vampire movie has the character who has to explain the rules. Um, and the way that they do that in the very beginning, the way that McKay does that in the very beginning, I think is really interesting in the comic book store talking about the history of Bram Stoker. And, you know, we, have talked a lot on this show um, or had conversations on the show before about the notion of, you know, the history of exploitation and horror and subtext. And a lot of times the history of horror is about carving out space for queer characters at the margins, right? We squint and we look at this character and be like, it's kind of queer coded. So we claim it and we're going to, this is, you know, we're going, it's inspires academic articles and it becomes part of a new canon because of the fact that we, that there was enough of room for an interpretation there, but that is still sort of like a really, um, you know, it, it, it requires a lot of effort on the part of the audience to make that happen to a lot of times to breathe that into, into reality, because that wasn't necessarily on the mind of the actors, wasn't necessarily on the mind of the filmmakers. So I, I what I was impressed by is this notion of, again, the subtext and text thing. What happens if you take queer characters, if you take trans characters and stop making them like a tertiary character that you have to be like, I bet, oh, I could write a, like a college thesis on the fact that this character could be read as a trans character. And instead, they're the heroes of the story. They're the villains of the story. The story belongs to, to them. Uh, I think that that is an interesting inversion because I think that 
you know, even if you compare in your review, Donato, you compare this to, to Bit, then I think Bit, which also has a trans vampire character, a, another great performance in that film, it it doesn't quite center in the way that I think this one does. I think that this one does more to make the entire community um, part of the conversation as well, rather than a single character or, or a couple of characters. So I will admit that I've only watched it within the last 24 hours. So I'm still sort of like turning over a lot of these pieces in my head. But to answer your question, that's kind of the, the piece that jumped out at me the most. Same to you, Blaine, if you'd like to go onto that. I also want to call out Grace Highland's performance, not necessarily because it's new, like Monagle said, but because she does it with such a coolness. Like mm -hmm. she's the cool hot girl and she's also a vampire. So she's got all this power and she's also trans. So she has even more power. Like she, <laughs> she's kind of this mythical, magical person, but who also we find shares much of the same traumas as the other characters. Um, for instance, the same predator who preys on, um, Kurt, the main character um, in the beginning, is the same vampire who also harmed Grace Highland and also harmed Kurt's friend. Um, and so it's very, while there is a lot of in your face, like, hey, this is very much a trans queer story, that notion of we're all part of this community that is being taken advantage of by the powers that be. Um, and just the idea that it doesn't matter if you're a vampire, it doesn't matter if you're human, it doesn't matter it, you know, if you're trans, cis, man, woman, we're all being abused by the same people. And so I think that was just a really beautiful glimpse at what that looks like and how we get so caught up in fighting each other when really there is this system in place that is making it that way. Um, so yeah, that just that small moment, I upon rewatching for like the third time today, it caught me and just made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, even though the uh, content was a little droll. I, I want to ask, um, I guess, both of you a little bit about the community element, because we've used the word community a couple times as a group here. And it, it's a weird comparison, but I had the opportunity to see for the second time, uh, while we're bragging, to see uh, how to blow up a pipeline this weekend. And I'm, I find myself thinking an awful lot about the composition of that group and how it sort of flies in the face of what we expect, that, that none of the characters and their relationship to climate change and their relationship to each other fits in these sort of like us versus them neat boxes. Um, it's a very intersectional coalition. It's a very powerful story. And I saw a lot of that here too, where it isn't, you know, the message of this film isn't, oh, you know, abandon your family, your found family, right, is going to be the people that stand up for you. It, it isn't that like you can change your, your dad's heart or mind. It does this sort of thing of like active community building you know, where these characters are, are have an active hand and, can, and move, you know, they move between spaces. Some people fall off, some people gain. I was really interested in the way that it positioned community as something that you can consciously and intentionally build. And I will start, uh, Blaine, with, with you, if you want to talk a little bit about how the sense of community in this film comes across to you. I find the word community to be a little contentious. Um, mm. 
In one context, we have the LGBTQIA plus community, which is full of beautiful, wonderful, fabulous, genius people, but also has a lot of inlaced misogyny and history of violence and just a lot of generational trauma um, that will continue if we don't take care of ourselves. And then there's this notion of community within horror. And that feels even stickier than that of the LGBTQIA plus community because of the infighting that I think we were just kind of talking about of the us versus them mentality that is so easily sparked within a fandom. Um, and there's that conflict, I guess, of wanting versus needing. And do I want a community? Yes, I really want a group of people of the same mind who I know when I can turn to and will understand me. And you can find that in a lot of LGBTQ spaces. But you're also just going to find the exact same harm you might find in a horror community, quote unquote, um, or, you know, any other space that you thought was sanctioned just for you or is safe. So, you know, this idea of community within this movie, is, I think, is another ideal and I think is a signal of maybe McKay's age or uh, greenness um, to just the idea of community and what that means. And it's not always going to be um, the support you thought it would be or that you necessarily need in this moment. It's, it's more about knowing that you can take care of yourself in a way that's much safer than elsewhere. I think that's kind of what people are looking for and assume as granted when they quote unquote join a community. But it's really, like you said, something you have to cultivate actively. And that means weeding your garden. Yeah, I think that is the biggest thing I was going to hit on the fact that they, you know, the film allows community to be messy and the film allows community to not always be a good thing to, to everything that you both said to this point. Like, Kurt gets involved in a community where there are predators and like a thing happens because of the bad people in said community. I think what I pull away from Sovam the most and if you want to equate it to the horror community, especially I it, just my own experiences. And I, I stopped using the phrase horror community a long time ago. Um, I, I learned lessons. I learned the hard way. And as much as that doesn't mean I never want to go to a film festival. It never means I want to not engage with people in whatever you want to call it. But I do believe that this idea of community is, is kind of a, a farce in a way, because I have found my people in the community. Like, Communities are there to be an introduction. Communities are there to make things happen. And communities are there like to grow. And, and they're there, exactly what you said. Like They're there to bring you in and show you the door to what you might want. But from there, it is weeding your garden. From there, it is 100% gravitating towards the people that you belong with, the people that you can trust. And it's not just this blanket oh, we're all, we're all part of the horror community. Of course we can let our guard down and just be ourselves together uh, because that's not how life works. And there are 
so many instances in Sovan where it lets Kurt, you know, find out the hard way. And I think that's very important to show because that is you're never going to learn until you put your hand over the fire or it happens to you. And, you know, hopefully, obviously, hopefully it is in a way that is not damaging you know, for the rest of your life or something of that nature. But, you know, it's hard not to shake some things and it's hard not to learn those lessons. So I do enjoy how it, it, the, the idea of community is not just this safety bubble. It's not this just this thing that like, oh, come into the community and you're safe from everyone who doesn't understand you because no people who understand you will still try to take advantage of you. And that is just as important to know. I'm really grateful. You said that because it's, Oh, it's just so frustrating sometimes to see folks who will refer to it as a horror community, even after the cases have been made for why this may not be true, or, you know, you may be setting yourself up for disappointment if you refer to it as such and have this idea of what a horror community is. And I feel like you're setting people up to experience not just disappointment, but also possibly even harm um, in saying like, yeah, I know there's a horror community around here somewhere. Or like, I know, like, you know, I still believe we have a horror community. Uh, um, I, I just think that's naive. Um, I, and I'm, I'm so sorry to bring him up again. This Phil guy, he wrote, Phil. I, I know, Jesus Christ. He wrote a, an op-ed about, you know, the idea that no, there there really isn't a horror community, and that was kind of an eye opener because he's old, and so I feel like he would know best. Um, so I I felt like okay, I need to take this I I take this understanding, take this these wise words um, from someone who you know is ancient, and apply it to what I see um, around the horror sphere and. There are still people really promoting and selling the idea of a horror community that unfortunately I, you know, have since learned doesn't really exist. And those people do, um, you know, tend to prey on that. Yeah, I learned I learned the lesson I think that is stuck with me the most is be wary of the people who want to take over the horror community and be the entire horror community voice and who want to be the mayor of whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Just just throwing that out there and you can take that however you want. We'll get fucking spicy. Um, I, I don't give a shit. It. Get, get spicy <laughs> on this podcast. I would I would love to, to continue on this thread and I particularly love to continue on this thread because I think Sovan does some really interesting things with the notion of horror as like like the diegetic concept of horror films as something that bonds people um, because horror itself, movies like Jesse James versus Frankenstein play a part in this movie and it's how characters come together and form that collective. And I think there's a thread there that we could pull for a very long time, but I do want to um, as, as sort of one of the last things that we talked about here, you know, I'm, I'm sure any filmmaker would also love if people talked about the filmic elements as well as the themes and as well as the concepts that are behind there. So uh, Donato, there's some really good Donato Reds in here. Uh, as folks know, Donato loves himself a little bit of smoky redness. The use of, of color, especially uh, Blaine during the drag scenes, as you kind of uh, pointed out earlier, are like just incredible uses of color in a way that doesn't feel derivative of the 1980s in a way that a lot of other films do. 
again, probably because McKay wasn't alive during the 1980s. I don't want to think about that. I, I don't want to do the math. Um, but I, I would love for, for both of you to talk, Blaine, obviously you go first, to talk a little bit about those filmic elements, production design, color, soundtrack, because I, it's a hard thing to articulate in just a few minutes, but I think this does a really good job of creating something that feels 80s, but isn't, distinctly isn't 80s in the way that these different elements come together. 80s is definitely part of the vibe. What I really got out of it was a 90s rave feel. Um, kind of mixed with that Y2K nostalgia. And I'll tell you why. It's because of Party Monster. Um, the lighting and the bright colors and the beautiful outfits and the dark undertones and the sinisterness of it all, uh, it just rang true for me. And I mean, the queerness of it all too. Like this was, this just felt very... 90s to me in a way that maybe like um Frankenhooker might which was like right on the cusp of the 80s and 90s and so I I'm just so in awe of this team's talent because like we said before it's a DIY horror movie and the soundtrack I mean I was really having a great time I was bopping to all of it and I was looking up some of the songs I was like how did they get the rights to some of this stuff this sounds like what you would hear on you know just a regular Spotify playlist um and the costuming too this I for what improvements what opportunities I think are there the quality of just the minute details that went into this are so overwhelming that you can miss a lot of it at first if you're looking for like what we talked about before, like what you're looking for when writing a review, um, things you can't really get into when trying to pick apart the technical aspects of it. Um, so gosh, I mean, there's just, there's a lot about this, the references, the, the angles, like you could tell exactly what everything was supposed to be and you could see it in your mind's eye. And I think that's part of why it's so hard to really convey how unique and special this movie is. There is, you talked about the costuming. I do have to say, um, I, I don't know, Alice Mayo McKay, Alice and I are fighting because I watched this movie and for the first 15 minutes, I was like, oh, it's set in the 90s. And then it kept going and I was like, oh, it's not set in the 90s. Oh my God, this is nostalgia for the 90s. I have not felt this old. This is this is the first horror film that I've watched that made it cl so clear, so very crystal clear how old I am. And I am a little um, a little unhappy about that, but it's that's more my problem than the film's problem. But I have, I first time I've ever been realize that my generation specifically was being targeted for on-screen nostalgia. It's a weird feeling. I think I understand my parents a little bit better now. This Y2K comeback is kicking my ass. It's Every not. time I turn around, they're like trying to bring back low-cut jeans or like the Jinko jeans. What? Why that, are we doing this again? That's fine if it's an Instagram account. Like I'm like, oh look, they're on TikTok. They're doing, you know, they're doing jeans. That's okay. But when somebody's like, this is the aesthetic of my movie that I'm going to spend months making, like we're living here, I'm like, no, that's too much. That's too much. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the way that I'll going back to the question and not the fact that we're all living in existential crisis over how old we are. Um, 
the way that I kind of come to terms with so vamp and why I get excited about it, even though, again, I wrote a quote unquote negative review is you can tell with a lot of indie films like who has a vision, who has some kind of confidence, who has a story they want to tell versus one that is just being put to screen. And it's enthusiasm, it's energy. I I think what what gets me here is to everything you've both said so far. There is so much energy and zest and, and like there's so much spirit in this film. And for whatever shortcomings there are due to budget, forever shortcomings there are due to a filmmaker that's still discovering how to make movies. I mean, these are all things that, again, we have to understand, like this is a college movie in a way like it, it should be like a thesis. But the fact that there is such a strong backbone to everything being said and that the messages ring so clear and the film has a personality despite all of that, like that's the difference. It's not just another indie horror film that looks like 20 other indie horror films I've watched in the last month. Like So Vam looks like So Vam the entire time. Uh, There's really no comparison again, bringing up the drag scenes and like the way that they like glow like a disco ball as that stuff's going on. And it doesn't, it's not just there to be in the background. Like that is a focal point. For, it's a bookend, actually. It's, it's our introduction. It's our exit. It's like that is the transition and like all of these things that are so confident in Sovam that it might get washed away to some people by the technical elements. That's still the difference for me. Like th- that's where it is. Like you brought me something that I'm like, I can see exactly what you're trying to do. What, what you just said, Blaine, like I can see every instance and I can see the big budget version of this. If you actually had the money and maybe it's years later, like my God, imagine getting the chance to like remake this years later. Um, I think that'd be such a fun experiment, but that is, you know, that's what I bring out of this. That's what I bring out of this experience and why I will watch like this filmmaker and see what they want to do over and over again. Um, and even just touching on like the gore going back to eighties. I think that's probably why maybe you thought that monogle, like there is the bodies just melt after people, after vampires, you know, feed on them. And it looks like, yeah, it just, it looks like there's a Furby that was covered in chocolate and someone just used a hairdryer to like kind of melt it away. And wonderful. Honestly, I love it. You're not afraid of it. You're confident. You put that right on screen and you just held on it. There's no, there's no wavering. And, And that is, that is the ultimate, takeaway i have from it like this is a filmmaker who is like fuck off this is my vision this is how i can do it so you're like we're just going full force into it and that is that is what i'm most impressed by so you know talking about the 80s 90s talking about the aesthetic all the film filmic elements i'm not gonna say it's not a rough watch it really is in certain aspects but i'm sorry it's a rough watch that has a lot of personality and that goes so much farther nowadays i think You know, there's a conversation happening right now online about uh, what punk is or isn't. And I certainly think that Sovam makes the case that uh, being trans is definitely punk. Um, And so is Sovam. (laughs) Ditto. That leads us to our last question. Um, The one we ask all of our guests, you know, Certified Forgotten, one of the ideas here, the reason we use Rotten Tomatoes as a barometer is not because we think it's the be-all, end-all of criticism, but that it serves as a sort of a cultural memory. When people want to go back and look at how films were received or think about what consensus was on a film, Rotten Tomatoes is a really good shorthand for that, especially as they add more historical reviews. So we're always curious about how a film's legacy will endure and how people will think about the movie and, and how or where it will find its audience. Um, Blaine, you've talked a lot about what this film meant to people when it was released just this past year and the conversations that were happening about 
you know, seeing it on Shutter, the accessibility of having it on Shutter. But I'm curious what you see in the future for this film, uh, especially as McKay's career continues to grow. Where do you think this movie will end up maybe in the queer canon and the vampire canon if you think that this is going to become kind of a benchmark film? So I think what I'm kind of going off of is the success of Bit, which is, you know, a a close comparison um, and the kind of success that Nicole Maines saw following uh, its premiere. And now, you know, Nicole Maines is becoming very closely um, a household name uh, between what The Flash and Yellow Jackets, especially right now, she's really um, at, at the at the forefront of, of all of this. So I would love nothing more than to see those actors um, continue to find success because of this movie um, and because of its accessibility on Shudder. I am so excited for McKay's continue, continued efforts and projects and art. Um, and I, I truly, <laughs> I see it as being a reference point and kind of, you know, a, another domino that has fallen that'll lead to more beautiful art that will reference this. Donato, I'm is that cohesive? Does that make sense? That was perfectly. Yeah, that was great. That is, I, it, you know, it's it, it's a wonderful. I love it whenever we can compare it to stuff that already exists because we have talked about um, bit on this podcast. That has been a film that we've talked about as well, and I do think they make for very very natural touch points in, in terms of when people look back and try and understand what horror was doing at the end of the 2010s, the beginning of the 2020s, these feel like two films that people are going to point to and say, this is what horror was doing and this is where it was headed. Yeah, but the the issue and what I'll get into in my answer here is that people know Bit exists and people don't know Sovan exists. That's the issue. Uh, Bit was able to go VOD. Bit was able to go on Amazon Prime and be streamable. uh, You know, and it had a star attached to it who is exploding, like rightfully so. Uh, What Sovan has going for it is as much as we love the Salem Horror Fest, that is a small, tiny indie horror fest that doesn't have a lot of traction, let's say, outside of the people who go. And again, going to Shudder, this is not a knock on Shudder by any means, but we're really only talking about, did, are we at 2 million yet for them? Like, that's still not that many subscribers. So what Sovam needs to actually be, you know, I, I think discovered still is the word, is some kind of release in a home video platform uh home video whatever blu-ray whatever you want to call it physical media um from a distributor that really is going to go full force into it it's got to be one of those distributors that's going to give it the proper time of day and give it like some kind of limited release where it's not just another here you go here's a blu-ray 15 bucks nothing special about it like sovam is going to be so important once more i'll say for the right audiences and i think it needs that kind of special treatment to be like, no, this isn't just another vampire movie. This isn't just another queer horror movie. Like this is, you probably have never seen something like this. And that's the kind of reverence it should be paid. Um, it's it's hard because it's a, tw- you know, a 2022 movie. So we're not talking about anything that's really that old. Uh, and they don't really do those releases for movies that are very new. So I, I, I dare say this is one of those movies that kind of just has to run its course for however many years. and be discovered later on whether either it's no longer part of the uh shutter library or you know it's able to get a deal out outside somewhere else 
that's when it's actually going to get the attention. Uh, Cause you know, unfortunately right now it's just too young. It's, it's too stuck in a contract and it's too what it is. And I'm glad that everyone on shutter has the chance to see it, but how many people on shutter are even going to take that chance and how many shutter subscribers still might not even want to see a quote unquote queer horror movie, which is frustrating to say, but that's, that's where we are. Damn you and your realism. As much as I can be optimistic and hopeful, I am a cynical son of a bitch. <laughs> Aren't we all? But I just, yeah, I, I think that's really spot on. And I'm hopeful that the right things will happen so that it gets the proper release. And it's also a great uh, argument for physical media as much as I don't like saying that because I prefer as little storage as possible I do think, you know, it's important, especially for movies like Sovam to have a physical release so that when they do go missing for however many years they need to before they resurface because of kids like us who have those physical copies and are bragging about it to others. It's just, yeah, physical media is really important. And it still might. I just do want to shout out that Shudder is one of the streamers that is very good about it. Uh, I own numerous Shudder Blu-rays because they are releasing them one by one. I, I'm almost positive Sovan has not gotten one yet, uh, but it, it still could. So from Shutter, it still could get a Blu-ray release and then that could be the entry point that it needs. Um, so still kudos to Shutter. I don't, you know, like this is a platform we all love. We're just, you know, we have to talk about streamers a certain way. It's just the way it is. We love Shutter. Please love you. Yeah, I'm, we'll leave the audience with the question that we don't have to answer now, which is, has Shutter's catalog gotten a little too big? Have their original catalog gotten a little too... Are, are things getting lost in a way they might not have two, three years ago? That's a conversation for another day. But the conversation we just had, um, I have to say thank you so much, Blaine, for, for coming on, for giving uh, up part of your evening, for bringing us this film. And, you know, we are... I'm always sort of shocked at, at, at the depth of the... Like, again, it's, it's Donato and it's me, and we're on the best of days, just sort of goofballs. And then we bring on these wonderful guests and they, we end up having these conversations about the nature of writing and like what it feels like to be confident or secure and, and how you navigate a community, whether it's real or imagined. Um, it was a really good conversation and I, I really appreciate you joining us. And I, I want to give you an opportunity here at the end to talk about what's going on in, in your own career and things you might want to share with our audience. Well, before I brag about myself, I do want to thank you both so much for a truly satisfying and fulfilling conversation that I hope um, others get to enjoy and appreciate just as much as I do. Um, what's going on right now for me is I have a podcast called Ladies and Ligaments, and I am currently kicking off season three, and the next episode, oh, well, episodes air on Mondays. And... I have a newsletter called Ew Hag, and you can find that on my Twitter profile as well as at blainewaterloo.carrd.co, which is weird. I'm sorry. Um, and I also contribute my editing specialties to Fangoria's print publication. So you should subscribe to that because it's beautiful. And again, physical media is important. And if folks want to follow you on Twitter uh, for as long as that remains a platform, what is your what is your handle on Twitter? Uh, my handle is at some hag in black. Perfect. Donato, uh, people want to know what you're working on. Come on, man. Wow us. What you got? Uh, you can follow me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, 
I'm fucking around a bit on TikTok right now, not doing anything crazy, but just trying to find my editing vibe. And uh, also, you are you're doing it? I got you're doing an okay job there, bud. Thank I actually you. I'm really enjoying the TikToks that you're coming up with. I appreciate that. They're just little slices of life from Donato. We'll we'll see if I ever get into like doing reviews and stuff there. But for now, they're just it's my happy place to just be like, I did a fun thing. Here's a video edit. Um, I went also, to Tiki Tatsuya and they set something on fire. Follow me on TikTok. Yep, yep I saw it. Bingo. Uh, also, spoutable. That seems to be the next big. Um, I as much as rip hive i i'm not going back at this point unless they fix a lot of things but if twitter does implode uh, i think spoutable is the closest thing i have found that is a nice alternative so if you'd like to find me on spoutable go for it what else am i doing what am i going to promote on those things uh i have just been in the newest fangoria recently talking about uh project wolf hunting i don't know if you edited my pc even blaine (laughs) i don't know if that was me but I remember it. There you go. Uh, so yeah, in the new Fango, uh, IGN, tons of stuff coming out 24-7. Renfield just went up. Or I don't know. I'm, I don't know when this episode's going to go up. So as of today, Renfield's my newest piece. Uh, lots of South by content from IGN and Slash Film. I, I am, again, I'm just tired. Just follow me. I write a bunch of things. Go to my authory. Subscribe to my newsletter. Just fucking support me. I don't know. Yeah, I will. I will echo that. I mean, support me. Don't support Donato. But no, I'll echo it, you can support the, the me. General, That's fine. The general notion of support. Um, you, you can follow me at, at Matt Monagle on Twitter. I post all of my writing there for as long as that's a thing. Um, I know that Authory and I believe Card does as well. It gives you sort of a subscription option where they will they will give you some like you can actually see updates every now and then. Is that correct? Does Card do that where you can get a digest emailed? Um, I, I know Authory does. I'm not sure about okay. the other one. I feel the, like Card does too, but yeah, sure. Awesome. Well, you have a newsletter, so fuck that. You don't need to do that. You can sign up for, for Blaine's actual newsletter. The point being is I will call out, not only should you visit certifiedforgotten.com and read the incredible film criticism and writing we have, uh, the current forms of communication between content creators and their audience are something we probably shouldn't take for granted. So you know, in, in, unless RSS feeds suddenly make a huge and unexpected comeback, if you like what you've heard from Donato, from myself, from Blaine, there are places you can go to to subscribe and have that content delivered directly to your inbox. That way you don't have to you know, miss something or wait for us to post it on Instagram or figure out how to do TikTok is certified forgotten, which, you know, listen, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen because Donato did it. And I don't want any part of that. I'm like four years and 40 years older than him. So it's like a whole thing. But on that note, um, again, Blaine, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, definitely we'll be getting an invite back uh, again. I'm sure you have more movies that you would love to talk about. Uh, and we look forward to uh, we look forward to interacting with you on the Twitters for as long as they may last. I'll see you around, friends. I'm excited. Sounds great. Donato, uh, walk us out with something. Melted chocolate blood.